so uh, I've, I've had the pleasure and honor of having a couple lunches with them, I believe. So, uh, But it is great to have them here this morning, and we are, are very, very blessed by that. I've learned a lot from him. I, I say this in complete sincerity. One of my favorite classes at seminary. Um, just truly a, a, a great class, a great uh, teacher of the word and someone who, who loves the Lord deeply. Uh, there's a lot of work in that class, uh, but very worth it. And uh, uh, so and he had, one of my favorite books, a book I always recommend, uh, authored by him. So this spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. Uh, so we are very honored to have him with us here this morning. Uh, just on a personal note, uh, Tuesday we are expecting uh, the arrival of our second child, so uh, very excited about that. Uh, the doctors have it. So, so unfortunately Beth's not able to be here today. The doctors have asked her to just stay home, quarantine, you know, she's fine and all that, but uh, so Miss that we're not able to be here as a whole family this morning, but we're very excited and uh, hopeful and everything has been smooth uh, to this point and uh, so we're praying for a, a safe and healthy delivery. Um, and at this time, if you would please stand for the reading of scripture. Um, I'm going to be reading from Psalm 34 and the reason a lot, I don't always, as you know, I don't always read from the Psalms, but a lot of times I do. When I pick up, it, it relates specifically from something I learned in Dr. Whitney's class. So this is one of the Psalms of the day uh, today. So I'm, I'm going to be reading the first 10 verses of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Let's pray. Father, we worship you and glorify your name, Lord, and this morning may we taste and see how good you are to us. Lord, that your word it is, it is sweeter than honey uh, from the honeycomb. And Lord, may we exalt and magnify the name of Jesus this morning. May our focus uh, be upon you. May we praise your name in songs and hymns and praise your name through your word and through hearing your word proclaimed. God, we pray for Dr. Whitney as he, as he uh, preaches this morning. May you be glorified in all that we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we bow before you this morning, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator and sustainer. Thank you for your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, and your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for this privilege today of gathering in your house to worship you. We pray that our worship will be from the heart acceptable unto you. Thank you for the guests that we have today. I pray that you would use them for your glory. I pray for his pastor, for our pastor and his family, Lord. It's their way. I pray that your special blessings will be upon them. There are many in our church family that have special needs. We want to lift those unto you and praise you and thank you, Father, for the improvement that many are making in their health situations. We pray that your hand would be upon them in a special way. I pray for our nation today and our president and the first lady. We pray that your healing hand would be on that family and all across our nation, really across the world, Father, that are plagued with this virus. We pray, Father, that we might humble ourselves before you and pray, turn from our wicked ways and call out unto you, repenting of our sins, Lord. You tell us if we'll do so, that you will heal our land. And we pray for that healing that can come from Almighty God, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, I'm delighted this morning to have a choir. First time we've had a choir since February. And it's a smaller choir, yes. Thank you. <laughs> now they're standing in line to get in the choir, you understand? We have, <laughs> we have a big group on Wednesday night, but to uh, observe social distancing, we have 13 up here this morning, and that's what we'll go with for a few weeks. I'm excited to have uh, Donald Whitley, Whitney here this morning. And you know what he remembers the most about Zach? I can't tell you. I'm sorry. You'll have to. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We're also excited this morning to have Philip Webb. Philip is a guest musician this morning. He'll be singing solo later in the service, and I'll not take time at that point to introduce him, but we're excited that he's here as well. We're going to sing Blessed Redeemer, and we'll <clears throat> pardon me, we find in John 19, verse 17, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull. Let's sing together. And on verse 2, we'll ask Janine to sing that as a solo. Of Calvary's
Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We are the church and we stand as one. We believe in the Holy Bible. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the resurrection, that Christ one day will return to earth. We believe in the blood of Jesus. We believe in eternal life. We believe in his love that frees us. To become, the bride of Christ. to become the bride of Christ. Remain standing as we sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine.
time, I'm going to dismiss the choir. Thank you, choir. Also at this time, we have children's sermon. Kelly King is going to come and share with us. And children, if you're up through the fifth grade, come on down to the stage. And we're going to sing a song right now as you come. I, I sing praises. Let's sing that. Come ahead, children, as we sing. I sing praises to your name, O Lord, praises to your name, O Lord, for your name is great and greatly to be praised. I sing praises to Hi, my friends. You guys good? Having a good weekend? All right. Well, I am so excited that Pastor Daniel asked me to come today and share a story with you. Okay? So I have some special items to share with you all. This one's kind of small, so I might have to walk around. All right. Well, apparently I lost it, but pretend... I have a special coin in my hand, okay? It's really, really special, and it's the only one. How would you feel if you had a special coin and you lost it? Go fortune. Mad, yeah. How else? How would you feel, Aniston? Sad, yeah. Well, in the Bible, Jesus tells us a story about a woman who had a coin and she lost it. But then something really exciting happened because she found it. And when she found it, she rejoiced and she was so happy she found it. I have something else. Okay, I looked all over my house and I couldn't find a sheep. So we're going to pretend that my elephant is a sheep. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. How many of you guys have pets at home? Ooh, lots of you guys. What would happen if your pet ran away or you lost your pet? How would you feel? Johnny. Really sad. I would probably feel real sad if my doggie ran away. Bosa. Angry, yeah. Well, guess what? Jesus tells us another story in the Bible, and it's about a shepherd 
And the shepherd left his 99 sheep just to go find his one missing sheep. So even though he had 99 others, he left them in the field to go find the one. All right, one more for you guys. What would happen if you lost your family? That would probably be really interesting. Huh? Sad, Sullivan? Yeah, that would be very sad. Yeah, scared and sad, right? Well, there's another, there's a third parable in the Bible. And in this parable, there's a son who he's, he's does some wrong things and he leaves home. But even though he does some wrong things and sins, when he comes back home, the dad is so excited and he throws him a dinner party and he is so excited that he came back. I'm going to read you guys a passage from the Bible and this comes from Luke 15, 21 to 24. And it says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So with all these stories, I, I want you guys to remember one important thing. All right. Jesus rejoices when we turn away from our, the things we do wrong and our sin and we turn towards him. When we do that, he rejoices just like the woman rejoiced, just like the dad rejoiced. That's what Jesus does. Every time that someone turns away from sin and finds him and has a relationship with him. All right. Does anyone want to pray? Come on, Aniston. You were the first to raise your hand. All right, guys, now probably the most exciting part of children's sermon for you all. You guys can go down and get your candy. Thank you, Kelly, and thank you, children. What a wonderful time. Let's sing together. Let's just praise the Lord. Let's just praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let's just lift our hearts to heaven and praise the Lord. 
think I've ever had three things on my ears at one time. It may take me a while to get out of that. Please take uh, the book of God and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as you're turning. Uh, Philip, thank you for that, brothers. So good to see you again. I was trying to think. I mean, I was just shocked to see you. I mean, Chicago, is, the last, is that the last time we saw one another? Is this not working? Was that, you were in Chicago, was that the last time, and then did you move to California after that? That's what I thought. So I just wasn't expecting to see you here. I'm delighted to see you, and <laughs> more delighted to hear you. So thank you for that. And I know I bring greetings to you from uh, Dr. Moeller, the president at Southern Seminary, and I know he would want me to uh, thank you for your church's gifts to the cooperative program. Every time you give to this church, a portion of that money, a portion decided by the church, makes its way to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. Now, what a lot of people aren't aware of is that that money first goes to the Kentucky Baptist Convention. And then in the annual session, each fall of the Kentucky Baptist Convention, the messengers from the churches, such as the messengers from this church, vote on the budget for the whole state convention and determine how much of that money stays in Kentucky, how much of that money goes on to what we'll call the central fund of the Southern Baptist Convention Cooperative Program. And in most state conventions, it's about 50-50. So half of that money stays here and helps plant churches in Kentucky, do Baptist ministry, Christian ministries on the campuses, and uh, provide training events all around the state. And then the rest of that money goes to the central fund, we'll call it, uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention, and most of the 40,000-plus Southern Baptist churches voluntarily give to this cooperative program. Then in the annual session of the Southern Baptist Convention, it's June, the messengers from all the churches in the convention who send messengers, including this church, vote on the budget for the whole Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, typically, 50% of that budget goes to support our more than 3,500 missionaries in 185 countries of the world. That budget is supplemented each December in the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 25% of the budget of the Southern Baptist Convention goes to the more than 5,000 home missionaries that we have through the North American Mission Board, and that budget is supplemented each spring by the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And then 20% of the budget of the Southern Baptist Convention goes to your six Southern Baptist seminaries, the oldest and largest of which I'm privileged to teach at on your behalf in Louisville. You might be surprised to know that if you add up all the seminary students of all kinds in America, Catholic seminary students, there's 5,000 of them, all the Methodist seminary students, all seminary students of all kinds, one out of five is in one of your six Southern Baptist seminaries. And what that means is someone, I can call someone from this church, as he has, to become a pastor, a missionary, a biblical counselor, women's ministry leader, worship leader, some type of vocational Christian ministry, and they don't have a lot of money. They can get the best seminary education in the world for a fraction of the cost at other places because there are 40,000 churches like this one giving to the cooperative program. I've spoken at seminaries where it costs students 10 times, literally 10 times what it costs the students at Southern Seminary. 
Now, the costs are roughly the same. You know, the electricity is going to cost about the same in both places, and the salaries of people are about the same. But our students pay a fraction of the cost because their churches, like yours, help defray the cost, like the student I brought with me this morning, Kevin O'Connor, who's come all the way from Ireland to uh, get his education at Southern Seminary because of its world-famous reputation. And all of which is to say, thank you for paying my salary. There's a wonderful promise in Romans 8.31 where the Lord says, If God is for us, well, first half of the sentence, there's two sentences in this short verse. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know if God is for you or if he's not? I mean, that's a very important question when you consider the alternatives. I mean, for example, if you want to uh, get married and nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? What if you marry the person of your dreams? Does that mean God is for you? Well, what if the marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? What if you are unable to have children? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have many wonderful children that all turn out well? Does that mean God is for you? What if you lose your job? You can't get a job. Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? If you're always having money trouble, does that mean God is against you? And what if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? How do you know whether God is for you or whether he is not? Well, you know, in the final analysis, none of the things I've just mentioned are any indication one way or the other. Because all the bad things I've mentioned there have happened to those God is clearly for. And all the good things I've mentioned there have happened to those God is dead set against. So ultimately, how do we know whether God is for us or not? Well, as believers in Christ, we know that God is for us because of what God says He has done for us in the Word of God. It's not because of changing circumstances, but the unchanging Word of God is the assurance we have that God is for us. Now, as we've looked at, Romans 8.31 is my primary text today, and there are two sentences in it. The first one says, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? And you can almost see Paul stroking his beard here and pondering these things. And after he thinks about these things for a while, they lead him to conclude that God is for us. But what are these things? And the second sentence there begins with the word if. If God is for us, who can be against us? And as one of your seminary professors, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here, right? It's very important in this case. That, the little word translated if, to start that sentence, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was first written, they had several different words, completely different words, but they are translated in English as the word if. But each of them gives a little different shade of if. It's 
Like I've been told, the Eskimos have some 16 different words, which means snow. One word for heavy, wet snow. They have a completely different word for a dry, powdery snow. That's the way it is with the word if in the Greek language. In English, to get the different shades of meaning, we have to put it in context. For example, a man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. And we realize, well, he might. Or he might not. It's going to depend on the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. Well, he's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the circumstances. That's the word if in this second sentence. If God is for us, who is against us? We could almost translate it as since God is for us, who is against us. But what led Paul to that conclusion was his pondering the last part of the previous sentence, these things. What should we say to these things? And he thinks about it, and that leads him to conclude God is for us. So it's very important then to understand what are these things that convince Paul and ought to convince believers in Christ here this morning that God is for us. Well, in the larger context, these things are the whole book of Romans up to this point. But in the immediate context, it's the things... He's been talking about starting in the previous paragraph. So if you'll go with me up to verse 26, it starts this paragraph. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we're going to see here that the Spirit's help in in prayer. We know God is for us because what the verses say here, how the Holy Spirit helps us when we pray. That convinced Paul. And ought to convince us that God is for us. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He, that's God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling believers is, Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you can't pray, you don't know what to pray. We're told here the Holy Spirit prays for you. You ever been there? You don't know what to pray. You want to pray. You desperately need prayer. But you don't know should you pray this or should you pray that. In our limited understanding, it could be either one. We don't know God's will on this thing. So what do we pray? Or have you ever been in the situation where you couldn't pray? Maybe your heart was so heavy like lead in your chest, all you could do is cast yourself across the bed and just sort of groan Godwardly. Oh, God. Or maybe you couldn't pray because you're in such great pain. Or you're sedated. You're so heavily medicated, you literally can't put two thoughts together in your brain and send them Godward. God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, bless her heart. Bless his heart. If he could just utter something, would you you just give me something to work with, would you? And I can help you. I can answer your prayer. No, no. Our God is so good and so great that in those worst moments of life when you most desperately need prayer, but you can't pray, the Holy Spirit prays for you. He doesn't abandon you because you can't pray something. He prays for you. Notice it says, 
We do not know what to pray for. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. Too deep for words. Those aren't their spirit's groans. That's our Godward groans. And it says here that the Holy Spirit, notice what he does. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He encodes upon those Godward groans the very will of God. When we don't know what to pray, he does, the Spirit does, and he helps us pray according to the very will of God. Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. If the Spirit of God will pray for me when I don't know what to pray, when I can't pray, and He intercedes according to the very will of God as though the Holy Spirit could pray any other way, if He will do that, God is for me. But that's not all. We also know that the, that the Lord is for us because of the very famous next verse, Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know. Have you ever noticed that part of the verse before? Hang on to that. We'll come back to that. We know. And we know that, not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who are called according to His purpose. If you are in Christ, this verse gives us the amazing promise. That everything that comes into our lives, even evil things, our God is so great and so good that he can take all things and work them together in his almighty hands to perform a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is gold. Our ultimate good and for his glory. Everything in the life of a Christian, even those things that are evil, you know they're evil. You call them evil. And God says, amen, they're evil. You're right. They're 100% pure evil. But God is able to take things that are pure evil and work them together with other things so that the final outcome is our ultimate good and His glory. Because there are some things that, taken by themselves, they're evil, but nothing in the life of a Christian can be evaluated just all by itself, self-contained and all by itself. Because nothing in the life of a Christian stands alone. Everything in the life of a believer has to come through the filter of God's will, and everything in the life of a believer is held and worked together in the hands of Almighty God for ultimate good and His glory. You take too much sodium, it will kill you. You take chloride, it will kill you. You work them together in proper proportions, and salt is beneficial. God can take things that by themselves are evil, Pure evil. And this verse tells us not just put on rose-colored glasses and, and try to see it differently. This doesn't tell us because some things are, are pure evil. This verse isn't telling us to look on the bright side of things. Some things don't have a bright side. This verse isn't telling us to look for the silver lining in, in every cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. This verse is facing the realism that often pure evil assails us. We have a God who is greater than the evil. We have a God who is greater than that. Have you ever seen the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28? It's Psalm 119.91, which says, For all things, all things are your servants, even things that are evil, even the work of the devil. As Luther said, yes, he's a devil, but he's God's devil. And he's on God's chain. 
And he can't do anything against us unless God permits it and allows it to filter through his will. So that our God is so good and so great, he can take the worst things that have ever happened to you and not just give you the hope that someday you can enter a world where all that memory is neutralized, those memories don't hurt you anymore. Oh, it's so much better than that. This verse promises us that they are turned into good, things for which we will praise God forever that he allowed us to go through them. Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say that by faith quite often. Only a Christian can say that by faith and often through gritted teeth and tears. But we can say it because we have a God who's greater than our circumstances, who can take the worst things that ever happened to you and turn them into your ultimate good and your glory, something for which we will praise God forever someday. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? If we had the time and the transparency to hear from everyone this morning, we'd hear about some of the most awful things people can imagine, maybe even some things somebody ought to be in prison for or worse. And so the Bible is not minimizing things. Like I said, telling you, look at the bright side or not even just the hope that someday we'll enter a new world and those memories will be erased and neutralized and the pain will be gone. They won't hurt us anymore. No, God will turn them into something we will praise Him for forever and ever. And as I said, that's, that's hard to envision in this world sometimes. But it's the truth. There are a lot of things that have happened to me that if I had the power to go back through that and to eliminate them, I would. Knowing this promise, I would still say, you know, I want out of that, as that great theologian Merle Haggard once said. No amount of money could buy from me the memories that I have of then. But no amount of money could pay me to go back and live through them again. And there are things that even though I know God will use them to bless me forever, if I had to go back and live through those things again and I had the ability to not have to do that, I would choose not to do that. Because they were evil and they were hard. But God says He will not waste our tears. And all the evil that's happened to us, He will redeem it in the sense of He will bless us for it forever, so much so that for all eternity we will say, Thank you, God that that happened to me because he will bless us through it forever and ever now it's just the opposite for those who aren't his the very best things that ever happen to unbelievers they will curse God for forever and ever because it will only increase their misery the greatest blessings they got in this world they didn't thank God for they didn't use them for his glory and they only increase their guilt at the judgment. But for believers, God takes the, he can take the worst things that ever happened to us and cause us to praise him forever. How do we know this? Because remember the verse begins, did you notice that? And we know this. And we know that this is true. Well, how do we know that? The previous verse. The two verses we just looked at. When do we claim Romans 8, 28? And by the way, I've noticed, but incidentally, that Christians seem to be backing away from this wonderful promise and, and encouraging others with it. 
And I think I know why. I, I think we've all seen people kind of blithely, flippantly throw out Romans 8, 28 to hurting people, and we, we don't want to be guilty of that. It can be insensitive. But you don't give people Romans 8, 28 when they're on the raw edge of pain, when they're angry at God. Why did you let this happen to me? Romans 8, 28 is for people who have, they're at the point where they're seriously, sincerely searching for answers. Why? why? I, I don't get it. And we say, well, we don't know why, but we do have this promise. And one day we're going to see the reality of this promise lived out. But we don't want to give up a promise as precious as Romans 8.28. But when do we cling to Romans 8.28? The worst times in our lives, right? When the worst things of life happen to us and we realize this is not wasted, this is not a mistake, God will bless me through this forever and ever. Well, what's happening at those times? The two previous verses. That's when the Holy Spirit's praying for us. In those times we don't know what to pray or we can't pray. Our pain is so great, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to us. Well, we don't know what to pray or how to pray. The Spirit of God is praying for us. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I would imagine it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, wouldn't you? So the Holy Spirit is always praying for us. He's praying the very will of God for us. Even in the worst things that have ever happened to us, those prayers are always answered. So that's how we know that a day is coming when it's not just the memory is erased and the pain is gone. We will actually praise God forever and ever for the worst things that ever happened to us here. And as unimaginable as that is, I want, I want to remind you who wrote that verse. The Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this verse, could stand here and say today, you think you've suffered? I've suffered far more than any of you. Remember that biographical material we have of him in a couple of places where he says, I've been beaten so many times, I've lost count. How many times have you been beaten for the sake of the gospel? He said, I can't even remember. Then he goes on to say, 195 times the leather lash of the Jews came across my back. How many times have you been whipped? For the sake of the gospel. 195 times this man had a leather whip across his back. He said, I've been stoned and left for dead. They, they finally gave up. They said, well, he's dead. We can go. How many times has that happened to you? He said, I've been shipwrecked three times there in the Mediterranean Sea. Night and a day, I've spent a total in the, in the river, in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. I've been in danger in rivers, danger in the cities, danger in the country, danger from Gentiles, danger from my own people. On and on and on, many sleepless nights, the exposure of cold and hunger. And he could genuinely say, I have suffered more than any of you have suffered. But God also gave the Apostle Paul the ultimate human experience. He was taken to heaven. He got a foretaste of heaven, a glimpse of heaven. He said, I don't know whether I was in the body or not or out of the body or not. I don't know. But he got to go and see heaven, see how it all turns out, how it all ends, what things are like there. Unfortunately, he said, I didn't get a movie or book deal out of it like people in your day do when they go to heaven. Supposedly, that was satire. 
But he said, I've seen how it all ends up, and I want to tell you something. That though I've suffered way more than you, I've seen what you haven't seen, and I'm here to tell you, as he says earlier in this very chapter, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. I've seen it. You haven't seen it. And I'm telling you that everything I've ever suffered is nothing compared to what's coming to us. That's the man who wrote Romans 8.28. And Paul says, you know what, if God will do that, if he'll take the worst things that have ever happened to us, and he's going to bless us forever for it, God is for us. But there's more. Look in verse 29. This is the beginning of what's often called Paul's golden chain. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So look at verse 29 in your Bible there. Those whom he for those whom he foreknew, if you were in Christ, God foreknew you. Before the foundation of the world, before you were created, he knew you and knew everything about you. And it means more than just he knew about you in advance. And he knew choices you would make in advance of those choices. It's a more intimate word in that. We could almost translate it as he foreloved you. He knew everything about you. He knew every sin you would ever commit. And he loved you anyway. And those whom he foreknew, these he also predestined. If you are in Christ, you have been predestined to become like Jesus Christ. All those in Christ are predestined to become like Jesus Christ. Now, if this verse said we were predestined to become like angels, we would rejoice forever that we were going to be beings that glorious. And if you'll kind of pay attention to it, that is a common belief. That somehow, when we go to heaven, humans morph into angels. Right? It's common belief. I mean, you'll see it very soon. Jimmy Stewart's going to help Clarence get his angel's wings, right? And he identifies as, I'm an angel second class. And he's trying to get his angel wings. And then the little bell rings at the end, you know. And, oh, that means he's gotten his angel's wings. We don't become angels when we go to heaven. It's more glorious than that. But if we were becoming angels, we would be astonished. Twice, twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, now an old man, falls on his face to worship angels when they appear to him. And they would have come just in just a little 15-watt bulb version of the glory that they really have. Now, John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? The apostle John had a pretty good theology, especially near the end of his life. Not only had he walked with Jesus for three years, he had been a minister of the gospel for, you know, decades. And so he had a pretty good theology. He knew you don't worship angels, you worship God alone. But when they actually appeared to him, he fell on his face. It was just, it was reflexive. And that both times I said, don't do that. Worship God. And perhaps they helped the old man get up and he said something, you know, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I, I, I just couldn't help it. You're just too glorious. 
If we knew we would be beings that glorious, we would rejoice forever. But folks, it's better than that. We have been predestined to become like Jesus Christ. Not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. We're going to be made like Jesus in his sinless, perfect humanity. Reflecting, radiating the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies. That's not all. Those whom he predestined, it says, he also called. Called with the call that awakens the dead. A call like he gave to Lazarus. When Lazarus was in the tomb and Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. If he hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come out. But the kind of call that awakens the dead... The kind of call that he's not obligated to give. The kind of call I received that night when I was nine years old, that Thursday night in Osceola, Arkansas. I'd been brought to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, since nine months before I was born. I'd heard the gospel every week for nine years. But that Thursday night, I heard God calling me through the gospel, as he does. He calls people through the gospel, but I heard him calling me in a way he had not called me before. Now, theologians speak of the general call that goes out whenever the gospel is preached, that all who hear it are sincerely called to Jesus Christ, and all who will repent and believe, he will receive. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When they hear the gospel, anyone who believes will be saved. But theologians refer to the special call that's mentioned here. That through the gospel, you hear him calling you. And he called me that night in a way he had not ever called me before. He called me in a way that night he had not called the boys on my right and the boys on my left. And I heard him calling me. And he didn't need me. And I added nothing to the team. He had no obligation to call me. But that's the kind of call that Paul speaks of here. And Paul knew exactly what that was like. He says, I was an enemy of the church, a persecutor of the church, and yet he called me. If you're in Christ, he called you like that. You didn't deserve it. He wasn't obligated to do it. But he called you with the kind of call that awakens the dead like Lazarus. All Lazarus contributed to his salvation was the sin from which he was saved. All he contributed to that resurrection was the corpse. And that's all we contribute when God calls us is our, our being dead in trespasses and sins. And God calls us, but it's, that's not all. Those whom he called, it says, these he also justified. And justified means far more than, if we can even speak like this, having all of our sins forgiven, as though we, you know, we merely have every sin we've ever committed forgiven. But if that's all that happened, do you realize you still couldn't go to heaven? It takes more to go to heaven than having no sin. If all of your sins were forgiven, you still couldn't go to heaven. I want you to imagine a, a line that extends, that the microphone's a center point here of a line that extends infinitely in this direction, minus one, minus two, minus three, and infinitely in this direction, plus one, plus two, plus three. Jonathan Edwards, that great colonial preacher from the 1700s, said our, famously, our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. How can that be? Because every word, every deed, every thought, every motive of our hearts is affected to some degree by sin. 
we never do anything perfectly purely. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue, every word, deed, thought, or motive would be some shade of blue. Some would be a dark shade of blue. Some would be a lighter shade of blue. But nothing we ever did would be without blue. It would be affected, infected by sin to some degree. Even in our best deeds, our most self-sacrificing moments, when you stop to help some stranger, you, you get up in the middle of the night for a sick child, in our most self-sacrificing moments, there's some selfishness even in that, even if we're not aware of it. It may be nothing more than, you know, well, well I hope somebody sees me do this, or I hope my spouse appreciates this, or, well, maybe nothing more than I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. But there's some selfishness in even the best deeds we ever do. What does the Bible say? The Bible says even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. We know our, our intentional sins are filthy rags before a holy God, but before a holy God, even our righteousnesses, it's a plural term, this act of righteousness and this one and this one, all of our righteousness are filthy rags in comparison to a perfectly pure and holy God. So in those moments when you say this is, this is disobedience and this is obedience and I choose, I choose obedience, Good. That's what you ought to do. And in some sense, God is pleased with that. In those moments when you say this is unrighteousness and this is righteousness and I, I, I choose righteousness. Good. In some sense, God is pleased and, and, and with that. And that's right. But the Bible says even when we choose and do righteousness, we're only increasing our guilt before God because we never do any righteousness perfectly. Every word, every deed, every thought, every motive is tainted to some degree by sin. So even when we do right, in a sense, we're only increasing our guilt before God. And when we realize we've done wrong and we try to make up for it, we, we do so with bloody hands. So we mess it up even more in one sense. Someone put it this way, even our tears need to be washed. Even our repentance needs to be repented of. And that's why our sins are infinite. And they're infinite upon infinite because whenever you sin, and to some degree that's every moment, right? At that moment you're sinning, you're not keeping, you're actually breaking the greatest of all commandments, aren't you? Because what is the greatest commandment? To love God, how much? With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And whenever we're sinning, we're not doing that. Whenever we're sinning, which is every moment, we're breaking the greatest of all commandments, so our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. But if you had never sinned in your life, do you realize that just brings you back to zero? To neutral? And to get to heaven, we must not only have no sin, and we have infinite sin, we must also have perfect righteousness. And we have none. But there was a man, a man who came from heaven, a man who lived a life of perfect righteousness for 33 years. He never sinned. But not only did he never sin, he perfectly obeyed. Every word, every deed, every thought, every motive was perfectly righteous. And never once did he sin. With all the constant 
false accusations, onslaughts of his enemy. Never did he, after being tired, kind of get fed up with it, just lose it for a moment, but get it back under control. Not for a second did he ever sin, which my understanding is at least as difficult as what he endured in those six hours on the cross because this means for 33 years, day and night, without one second did he ever disobey God. He always actively obeyed God. He loved him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. His neighbor is himself. And Jesus kept the law, and by doing so, Jesus earned heaven. The only man to ever do so. And that is what qualified him to be a substitute for those who had forfeited heaven. Jesus earned salvation. So salvation by works? Oh, you bet it is, but not yours. Someone had to work for your salvation. Jesus worked 33 years of perfect righteousness. And that qualified him to be a substitute, which he willingly became on the cross and God accepted that sacrifice we know because God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of heaven and from there to return someday to be the judge over all so that on the cross that great exchange took place as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become zero neutral Know that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we believe into Christ, that's literally what the Greek word means here. It means we don't just believe about Jesus, we believe into Jesus. We faith into Christ. And you've heard about being united with Christ by faith. That's what it means. We believe into Jesus so that when God looks at you, get ready for this. He gives you credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus. Imagine that. That's what justified means. Not just forgiven of your sins. Far more than that. He looks as you as though you healed all those people. He looks upon you as though you spoke the words of Jesus. He looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Jesus. And you get credit for having lived the life of Jesus. You know what Jesus got? He got credit for having lived my life. And you know what that earned? The perfectly pure Son of God? The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified. And believe it or not, it gets even better. For those whom he justified, verse 29, verse 30 says, These he also glorified, made like Christ forever and ever. And notice here, it's past tense. It's in the past tense. It's still future to our experience, but in the mind of God, it's done. Just like eternity past, He knew all about you. Every sin you ever committed but loved you anyway, He knew that in eternity past, and for all eternity future in His mind, it's done. You were made like Christ and glorified forever and ever. So the Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What things, Paul? Well, he gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I can't pray and I don't know what to pray. He prays for me. He prays the very will of God and those prayers are always answered. He takes everything that ever happens to me, even the very worst things that have ever happened to me and doesn't just give me hope of a day when those memories are neutralized and the memories won't hurt me anymore. No, he is going to bless me forever 
through even the very worst things that have ever happened to me. And before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about me, every sin I ever committed in my life, he loved me anyway and predestined me, me, to be like angels. No, he predestined me to be like Jesus. And then when I was his enemy, I was dead in trespasses and sins. He had no obligation. He called me with the kind of call that awakens the dead and then gave to me, me, credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and has promised to make me like Jesus forever and ever. What shall we say to these things? We can say a lot. But at the very least, we can say this. God is for us. Well then, you might say, well, Paul, if that's right, if that's true, if God is for me like that, answer me this. Why is my life so stinking hard? Oh, this sounds great on Sunday morning in church, Paul, but I've got to go home. And you know what, Paul? My life is hard at home. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Life is hard at my job. And I've got things happening to me that shouldn't, Shouldn't be happening. Horrible things, hard things. If God is for me, like you're saying, Paul, why is my life so hard? Well, Paul doesn't say that if God is for us, who is against us? He, do, he doesn't say nothing is against us. In fact, the Bible teaches us very clearly the whole world is against us. Jesus said if the world hates you, if the world hated him, it's going to hate you. And everything that you're for as a Christian, the world is increasingly against, isn't it? You're not sure about that? Turn on the news. Are you for a child once conceived being brought to birth? Well, the world's against that. Are you for marriage being between a man and a woman and for a life? Well, the world's against that. And whatever you're for as a Christian, the world is against, and increasingly so. And the longer we live, the more it's... Being a Christian in this world is like swimming upstream and the current's getting stronger and stronger all the time. The whole world is against us. That makes life hard. And the Bible says not only the world, but the flesh is against us. The flesh is that part of us that even though justified and made right with God through Jesus, there's still a part of us in this world that still finds sin appealing and temptation attractive. And that's called the flesh. And Paul says it's like a war within you. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And that makes life hard because it causes us to make choices sometimes that leave scars on our bodies, scars on our relationships. And there's a sin factory that beats in my chest that's constantly finding sin appealing and attractive. And, and when I yield to that, well, I'm not a victim. I choose that. When I sin, I choose to sin. And at that moment, I want sin more than I want righteousness and obedience. And there's consequences for that. And the Bible says God often disciplines us for our sins. And discipline makes life hard. And even though the Holy Spirit causes me to say, Lord, you know right now, take every sin away from me. Change me right now so that I never sin again. He says, that's not going to happen until I'm in heaven. So even though there's that part of me, the spirit 
wars against a part of me that's fighting back that says, oh, don't you want to sin? This is, you want this, don't you? And that makes my life hard. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil, I'm sure, made life hard for Job, and he makes life hard for us. But what Paul is saying here, when he says, if God is for us, who is against us? And yet the Bible is saying, the world, the flesh, the devil are against us, and that makes life hard. James Montgomery Boyce, late pastor of Philadelphia, said it's, it's like Paul has an old-fashioned set of scales here. And on the one side, he, he's throwing peanuts. You got anything against you? Are you kidding, Paul? The whole world is against me. Okay, put that peanut over there. Plunk. Anything else? Yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest sure works against me, Paul. Well, put that over there. Plunk, another peanut. Anything else? Well, the devil is against me, Paul. Well, put that there. Plunk. Anything else? Yeah, I think my boss is against me. You know, my teachers are against me. Plunk, put that over there. And then it's as though after all that, yep, there's a lot against you. Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom. If God is for you, who is against you? The world, the flesh, the devil, your boss? Who are they? If God is for you. So what he's finally saying here is that if God is for you, nothing or no one can thwart his eternal plan. He's got a plan from eternity that he has foreknown, for love, called, predestined, justified, glorified, and nothing and no one can thwart God's eternal plan. Your place in heaven is secure. It's an eternal plan, and no one can stop God's plan. And that means you too. If you could lose your salvation, you would. You already would have lost it. What this means is nothing and no one can thwart God's eternal plan. Well, the obvious question now is this. Well, as a, as a part of what I just said, let me, let me add this. Because it's so important that when God is for you, nothing and no one can thwart that. And so if you've fallen under false teaching in the past, or some religious group now condemns you, Remember, there is no church, there's no official, there's no denomination, there's no church that can decree you lose your salvation. And neither unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving spouse, nor an unbelieving boss, or any other unbeliever can so persecute you, so confine you from keeping you from obeying God like you would want, that can decree you lose your salvation. No one can so tempt you or to do anything that would cause him to reject you. And God is for you, is for you forever. If God is for you, who is against us? And the who includes you. The who includes you. You didn't put yourself into God's grace. You will not put yourself out. Now anyone who hears that and thinks that means, once I make a profession of faith, I can live any way I want and go to heaven, is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. Brother, this is meant to be a pastoral encouragement to those of tender conscience who are terrified that they may have said something, done something that will cause God's patience to finally be exhausted 
and he will slam the door of heaven, that there's some sin that they cannot conquer, and they've done it and asked God's forgiveness so many times that finally he says that's the last time, and the door of heaven will be shut against you, even though you want nothing more than his salvation. You want nothing more than heaven. My brother, sister, you didn't put yourself in. You will not sin yourself out. If he was for you from the beginning of the world on every sin you ever committed, he, st- he will always be for you. So then, realize when he is for you, he is for you forever. So don't doubt his love. One day I was reading a book by the most famous of the Puritan theologians, John Owen. And I was on page 13. So far, it was okay. Nothing really stood out. And then I read one sentence that like a light switch turned on the tears. Here was that sentence. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father the greatest unkindness you can do to God is not to believe that he loves you. He gives you the Holy Spirit who prays for you when you don't know what to pray, when you can't pray. He takes everything that ever happens to you and doesn't just neutralize your pain from it, but rather he blesses you forever and ever through the worst things that ever happened. Knowing every sin you would ever commit in advance, he loved you anyway and predestined you to be like Jesus and called you when you were his enemy and running away from him and gave you credit for having lived the whole life of Jesus and has promised to make you like Christ forever and ever and you wonder if he loves you? What would be a better convincing Winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? That would convince you more than all these other things? When God is for you, he's for you forever, so don't doubt his love. So I'll close with the obvious question, is God for you? Is God for you? He is for all who will come to Christ. And that means you today. And if your answer is a a trembling, almost, I, I, I want that to be so. Yes, I think God is for me. I want it to be so. I believe it is so. My brother, sister, be ravished by the truth of that. Reaffirm the truth that He is for all who will come to Him. Reaffirm the truth, God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. I realize that if you've never come to Christ, right now you've made yourself his enemy and God stands against you. And your life may be looking pretty good. You compare it to other people. I'm doing pretty well at my job, better than most people. I guess me and God are okay, even though I've never come to Christ. Realize you, by rejecting Christ, you have made yourself his enemy, and you will realize to your horror one day what it means to stand before him and for God to be your enemy. If God is against you, who can be for you?
But if you will come to Christ, be sure that He will receive you. No matter who you are or what you've done or how many times you have done it. You may have come in here today fearful that if someone like you comes into a church building, the whole church building might collapse on top of you. He will receive you. In the name of Jesus, I say come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and welcome. No matter who you are or what you've done, He will receive you. Or you may be here today, you've been in church every Sunday of your whole life. But if your life were exposed, it'd be the biggest scandal in Lexington. He'll receive you too. He receives even the self-righteous. And if you'll come to Him, no matter who you are or what you've done, regardless of whether you ever get the house you want or the spouse you want, or the education you want, or the job you want. If you come to Christ, you get God. And if God is for us, who is against us? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Bible tells us this gospel. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who prays for us. Thank you for the church where we hear the gospel proclaimed. Oh Lord, I pray for any today who have realized they've never come to Christ. I pray you'd cause them to want to run in their hearts to Jesus today, to wrap their arms around him and say, oh Lord, have mercy on me for Jesus' sake. those who have come to Christ, oh God, give them the reassurance of what it means that if God is for us, who can be against us? And I ask all this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.